Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Honey and Co. with me, Itamar Surovich. We hold the talks in our deli, Honey and Spice, in front of a small audience. We ask the people we admire from the world of food to come over. Cooks, waiters, makers, writers, drinkers and thinkers. We have something to eat, a glass of wine, and they tell us their story of making a life in food. Today we'll be talking to the lovely Fusha Dunlop. She's an expert on Chinese cuisine. She speaks the language. She lived there for a while studying and she writes beautifully and evocatively and so mouth-wateringly. Fusha's going to talk to us about how it is being a foreigner in China, about what are the best tools to use in cooking. She's an excellent speaker. It was a pleasure to have her and listen and enjoy. Buy her books. Go to China. We're moving there. Happy today to have Fusha Dunlop here, which we're huge fans, and we seem to have been stalking her for quite a while in different events. And we first met her in a kind of she didn't remember until now, but in a food trend uh, event talking about Sichuan food and chili peppers and a lot, a lot of chili, which I'm not a huge fan of, but still I was enchanted by it. <laughs> and um, ever since we've kind of managed to walk into her in a lot of places and uh, buy her books, and we're very excited that she's here. She's written. Many books, uh, one of which the revolutionary, um, I can't remember the full name now. Revolutionary Chinese, Chinese cookbook. It's a very simple one, I should remember, uh, which I got as a gift for my birthday with a wok and a Chinese spatula thing. And I told my husband that is not a gift for me, it's a gift for you. <laughs> um, and a lot of other ones. And last year, you've published uh, Land of Fish and Rice, which is a change of cuisine a bit for you. Mm, yes, a really new region. Yeah, so tell us a bit about the first. Szechuan kind of, that was the first way you started writing, no? Yeah. Yeah. So, a bit about where you started, how? Yeah, so I went to study in Szechuan in 1994 and um, just completely fell in love with food there. So I was learning Chinese and I was supposed to be doing something very dry and academic, but very quickly got seduced by the food and ended up spending all my time in kitchens and sort of going to neighborhood restaurants and saying, who's going to come and learn? Things like that. And then ended up going to cooking school. And the thing about Sichuanese food, I mean, now it's very popular globally, but at that time it was almost completely unknown in Britain, I'm not sure, not very well known in America. 
Um, some restaurants in London used the name Sichuanese on dishes, but they didn't have Sichuanese restaurants and Sichuanese cooks. So I went there, sort of having been used to a little bit of Anglo-Cantonese food in London, and suddenly there was this incredibly lively, spicy food, so colourful and vibrant, and so many exciting flavours. And also the other thing is it was very fresh and healthy, incredible um, vegetables, and um, it was just stunning. And so I just did what I'd been doing since I was a teenager and just tried to learn about it. <laughs> and, and you studied Chinese, you speak fluently. Oh, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I studied English literature at university, and I actually started Mandarin in evening classes at the University of Westminster um, after a trip to China, so I didn't realise what I was taking on. It was not, it looks like a very coherent career path, but it was just bit by bit <laughs> at the time. And, and also not a food background, you were studying academically. Well, I, want, I remember telling a teacher when I was 11 that I wanted to be a chef. And um, cooking was always the thing that I enjoyed most. And my mother's a great cook, and I had a very unusual food upbringing. So in Britain in the 70s, my mother was teaching English as a foreign language in Oxford. So we had foreign students living with us, visiting, cooking. It's quite unique and, for that um, time. Yeah, and um, I remember being slightly embarrassed because my mother would take radical things to, you know, bring a dish parties like hummus, <laughs> goat's cheese, which was very weird at the time. But, um, yeah, so um, I grew up with a lot of food, and I wanted to be a chef, a cook, but I grew up in Oxford, and everyone was very academic, and sort of university was the inevitable thing, but um, I kind of knew I wanted to do something with food, but wasn't quite sure what. All right, and then when you get to China, and you are white, and you are a woman, how does that get reflected in, in academia and in food? Do people let you into their kitchens? Do they open um, their kind of hearts or is it a bit of a rough kind of start? Well, sort of in the mid-90s in China, okay, China was really just beginning to open up. There weren't that many foreigners and I deliberately went to Chengdu in Sichuan because I didn't want to be in an expat center like Shanghai or Beijing. I wanted to meet Chinese people. And um, so... You know, there were probably a couple of hundred Westerners in, in this huge provincial city at the time. And um, so there was this kind of neutral surprise and discovery. And we were just treated like Martians or, I mean, celebrities or freaks or something. So literally, if I would cycle through Chengdu on my bicycle, everyone would stop what they were doing and look and often say, Laowai, which means foreigner, or hello. <laughs> and, um, you know, my classmates and I, we were all in adverts on television. We were invited to give speeches just because we were foreign, no other reason. And so there was this kind of surprise thing. And most Chinese people at that time had not had any interaction with foreigners. So it was just very interesting. And, and people who went to China at that time, it's not like now when everyone thinks that it's a really sound career move to learn Mandarin. And everyone thought I was mad learning Chinese, completely pointless. It was really eccentric to go and <laughs> spend time in China. So um, we had this kind of novelty value. And so as a student, when I first started going to restaurants in the neighbourhood of the university that I really liked, asking to speak to the boss and saying, you know, would it be possible to study in your kitchen? I think they just... I mean, it was very stunning that a university graduate would want to do cooking, which is low status. The fact that I was a foreigner and a woman made it all a bit hilarious and interesting. So they usually said yes, and um, I remember as time went on, um, and then I, I took some private classes at this famous cooking school, and then when I finished at the university, they invited me to enrol in a chef's course. 
So that was very weird in retrospect. I mean, I didn't really think about it at the time, but I was the first foreigner ever to study there. Probably the first foreigner ever to go to a chef school in China, I'm guessing. Just because and women go, or is it mostly men? Oh, there were 50 young men in the class and three women, including me. And most of the classmates have never spoken to a foreigner before, <laughs> so they all thought it was a bit weird. Yeah. So And other things. Yeah. And and in the houses, uh, did you get to see people's houses? Were the women cooking there or was it still the men cooking at home? And did they kind of have a traditional, like, you know, in the UK traditionally, the women cooked at home and the men were cooking in restaurants. Uh, we're trying to change the balance a bit, but <laughs> in China, is that... Uh... No, a bit of both. I mean, I think a lot of professional chefs are men, particularly in wok cookery, which is very, very physical. And at the time, a lot of the cookers were coal-fired. And it was just like heavy walk full of food in an inferno. And, um, and I think that was seen as a very masculine job. Um, so women tended to work in pastry making and cold dishes. So I have met very few female head chefs. But at home, actually, a lot of Sichuanese men are very good cooks. And I still, I take notes all the time when I'm in China. I have all these notes on recipes told to me by male taxi drivers. Like when they hear what I'm doing, they're like really insistent on how you make a fish, a fish and pickle stew. <laughs> so yeah, men as well. Yeah. And then, so you, so you kind of started traveling around China a bit more. You've expanded to Hunan as well, yeah. you know, and now I can't pronounce the. Oh, Shanghai, I can say, but I, I can't pronounce the, the region. So what's the region? How do you mean pronounce it? Well, it's Jiangnan, which means literally south of the river. And that's the kind of romantic name given to this region inland from Shanghai, including um, sort of comprising basically um, Zhejiang and Jiangsu provinces. And it's sometimes referred to as Shanghainese cooking or as um, Su cooking from um, Jiangsu province or Jiangzhe, Jiangsu, Zhejiang um, uh, cooking. But so it's a sort of slightly confusing variety of names, um, but it's one of the great centres of Chinese gastronomy, and it's one that we have until recently heard almost nothing about in this country, and very little had been written about it in English, which is why I wanted to try and write something because you know people often talk about four great Chinese cuisines, roughly north, south, east, and west, and Sichuanese is the western one, and Cantonese is the southern one, and this region is the eastern one. But it's um, it's a subtle cuisine. It's not as bold and spicy as Sichuanese. Yeah, everything seems to be but, much um, more mellow and a lot more use of kind of aromatic stuff and less less chili. But this was my experience yeah. when cooking from it, so, which is perfect for me because, like I say, chili is not my best thing. But when we were cooking, and I've cooked quite a few dishes from here, uh, spring onions and ginger and a lot of shaoxing uh, wine and stuff like that. So where Tell me a bit about ingredients, because for us, they, they're all a bit foreign. So when you are in London and you want to start cooking Chinese food, how do you even start? Well, I would say um, Chinatown is a good place to start because there are several excellent Chinese supermarkets. And you really only need to get a few things to get set up for basic Chinese cooking. So, you know, soy sauce, obviously, light for salty umami flavors, dark soy sauce um, for color, um, a good Chinese vinegar, Zhenjiang vinegar from this region is widely available in all Chinese shops. And, um, you know, a few pastes and spices. Um, but it's not like if you do one shop and it's not even very expensive and you go and get like 10 different things, eight or 10 different things, then you can do a whole range of, um, of Chinese recipes. And then with the fresh ingredients, um, 
there's a sort of increasing, and I should say also that there are a lot of little neighbourhood Chinese supermarkets now. So I live in Dalston, and to my delight, this um, Fujianese couple opened a little Chinese shop there, and it's I can literally go out in my apron when cooking and <laughs> fill up on something I've forgotten. Um, with the fresh ingredients, you tend to have to come into Chinatown, but I think one thing that is really worth doing is using Chinese techniques with vegetables um, that are more widely available. Yeah. yeah, because a lot of them transfer very well. And in terms of cooking techniques, as, as you mentioned it, what are the kind of the main cooking techniques? Because there's a lot of steaming. Yeah, I would say, I mean, stir-frying is the kind of famous one, right? When people think of Chinese cookery, they think of the wok and stir-frying. But as you say, steaming, and that's really... You know, the Chinese have been steaming since the New Stone Age. It is really, mm. um, really an important cooking method. Um, and then there are lots and lots of sort of refinements of the cooking methods. And when I was at cooking school in Sichuan, we learned 56 different official cooking methods. Um, but, you know, the basics, I would say one thing, which is not even a cooking method, but it is really important in Chinese cooking, is cutting. Um, so particularly with stir-frying, when you're cooking food fast over high heat, you have to cut things into small pieces and evenly for even cooking. Um, and that also, of course, is connected with the use of chopsticks. So Chinese food is almost always cut into small pieces or it's tender enough to be pulled apart with chopsticks. So it's really good to um, think about cutting. And it can be a very pleasurable thing and quite meditative. And it also makes dishes look nice if they're cut evenly. Beautiful, good sharp knife as well. Yeah, quite an important thing for. Um, when you go there, what are the ingredients you would bring back that you can't find here? Oh, um, Sichuan pepper, um, because you can get it here now, and um, sometimes it's quite good. But um, I find supplies in this country can be a little unreliable. Whereas if I go to Chengdu, I always bring back really knockout Sichuan pepper which you literally have to chew three times and take out and your mouth is singing, sizzling and tingling for like about 20 minutes afterwards. Um, so Sichuan pepper, and I've started bringing back things like, there are now some sort of artisanal vinegars and soy sauces, which are very good. Um, yeah, so those are the main things. And the rest you can find here, hopefully. Most yeah, we'll go and eat. I mean, there are lots of actually fresh things which you have to eat there, like bamboo shoots, which are just yeah. so wonderful. When you're here, where would you go and eat Chinese food? Would you go out? Oh, yeah. Um, well, my most regular is the Royal China Club for dim sum, yeah. lunchtime dim sum, which is just so delicious and exciting. And I think also dim sum is one of those things that you can't really do at home because the whole point is you have lots of different things and you'd have to be insane to <laughs> make 15 <laughs> different kinds of dumpling with 15 doughs and 15 stomachs, you know. Yeah, that's really good. Food. And like, like they're here with the trolleys and stuff, is that also authentic to China? Because I, you know, sometimes there's a lot of translations in the West of restaurants and how they are, but oh. the eating experience in a Chinese restaurant. Would no, they have like so. trolleys at lunchtime? And yeah, in Hong Kong, there are still quite a few restaurants that have trolleys. And one of the older ones, if you go there in the morning, the Luke Yu Tea House, they even have people with trays, like ice cream vendors in cinemas in theatres, you know, <laughs> with your dim sum. And, um, yeah, so that is something that you find in China too. But I think also that there are just so many more Chinese people 
in a city like London wanting to eat Chinese food. And so I think that's raised the level of authenticity because there are particularly there are so many Chinese students and there are lots of small restaurants in some outlying parts of London and they don't really care about the Western customers. They just do a sort of sweet and sour pork egg fried rice menu and then they have really interesting regional dishes. And um, sometimes they don't even bother translating the name of the restaurant. No, there's a couple in Chinatown that say not for Westerners, which this dish, but not, <laughs> not if you're not Chinese, you wouldn't understand. Yeah. Um, what about the other way around? Is there any interest in China in Western cuisine? Well, okay, so somewhere like Shanghai, yes, because Shanghai is always very sophisticated and very used to living in a sort of cosmopolitan, multicultural city. But um, I get told constantly by Chinese people, which means of course. Western food is very simple and very monotonous. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is the stereotype. And you know, like the other day, a taxi driver said, oh, Western food, just hamburgers and sandwiches, that sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> and that's the stereotype. And um, you know, when I'm talking to the Chinese people about Western food, they can't believe that anyone would seriously treat potatoes as a staple food. You know, in China, only a starving peasant would live on potatoes, you know, otherwise potatoes are vegetable to accompany And, um, yeah, people, I think the main complaint is just that, that it's simple and monotonous. And I have to say that, you know, I've, it's a sort of cross-cultural thing I do, and I've spent years battling this thing and telling them about lovely Western food. But as time goes on, I've actually sort of given up because I think in terms of variety, I think it's very hard to be Chinese food. So it's just the number of ingredients, the number of different dishes and textures and contrasts in even a reasonably simple home-cooked meal are far more than you would have um, in many Western traditions. <laughs> and in, in this book you talk a bit about the structure of the, I can't say it again. Shanghainese cuisine. I've tried a few times today. I cannot get it. So, how would you structure a meal when you come to sit down for a festive meal, not just dinner? At okay. Home? So there are sort of regional variations, but in this region, you start with cold dishes. So that would apply at home or um, in a restaurant, and um, they can be quite elaborate. So if you go for a banquet, you might get eight cold dishes or something like that. And um, the point is that you avoid repetition. It's all got to be as exciting and varied as possible. So you want to have different ingredients, different main ingredients, different colours, something's wet, something's dry, something's sweet, something's salty, something, you know, the, the idea that you're kind of going on a journey and it's pleasurable variety. Um, so then you have your cold dishes and then the hot dishes and again, variety is the main thing, and you almost always, with a Chinese meal, high or low, have a soup. Um, so even if you just have like fried noodles in a cafe, you'll have a bowl of broth, because Chinese food is also all about balance and health and comfort, and people think it's a bit dry to have something just fried without broth, so soup. Um, yeah, and then typically at the end of the meal, you will have fruit. Um, so in a fancy restaurant, a platter with lots of cut fruit, and um, at home maybe just you know fruit, and um, yeah, sweet dishes. Um, 
sometimes you might have a sweet soup towards the end for a special like for a wedding or something but they tend to be worked in and out and in this region you can have things which we would think of as puddings for a first course Shanghainese is quite a lot of sweets from, which come from Suzhou cooking which is very sweet interesting I want you to read a little something if you don't mind <laughs> because I just think it's excellent write beautifully and very evocatively about food I want you to just read the, the intro to to this recipe. To this recipe. Okay. If you don't mind. Um, so this is Furong Tan Dou, which is hibiscus blossom egg white with fresh broad beans. You can see peeled broad beans in a very fluffy egg white mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. The pink is ham. So you have a nice colour contrast, which is very important to this cuisine as well. This simple but dreamily delicious dish is made of pillowy, cloud-like egg white and fresh broad beans, finished with a sprinkling of dark pink ham. The egg white, scrambled gently to preserve its tenderness, resembles the loose, unbuttoned white flowers of the cotton or confederate rose, hibiscus mutabilis, hence its name. I first tasted this dish in a small restaurant in Yangzhou run by chef Yang Bin. It's typical of Yangzhou cooking in its delicacy, its seasonality, and the elegant way in which the rosy ham is used to complement the white egg and bright green beans. The crux of this dish is ho the control of heat and timing. The egg white must be scrambled at a modest temperature. If you overheat it, it will lose its soft custardy texture. It's so nice. Like, who would want to eat that? <laughs> so, just to get you hungry before you, know, before you get some food. How do you combine that? Because obviously you have like a huge passion for food and writing about it. So as you're traveling, do you eat something, take notes? Do you go into a kitchen and then take notes? Do you just go a few times and try to recreate? It must be a process to write something that explains to us how a dish would feel in... Mm. Well, I suppose the first thing is, like, with a regional book like that, I want to have a real sense of connection with the region. So I spent about 10 years getting to know it, going back and back to the same places. And um, I do take notes all the time. And um, I t- when I have the chance to go into kitchens, I take notes there. I eat constantly, try things, and I also talk to people. So just people I meet, any kind of people, and also professional chefs. And that's one thing about the training that I had, that I can talk in sort of professional culinary language to chefs, which really helps in sort of nailing the specifics of recipes. So it's a combination of those things. And then... Um, yeah, and then I suppose um, I have an idea about how I want something to taste, how it should taste, and then back home here, um, I try and recreate it, and I just do it till I think the recipe works. And then often there are issues, and I used to have to, with my first book, Sichuan Cookery, um, I just had a list of questions and problems, and then I would have to wait like a year before I went back to China, and then I would novel a chef and get him in a tea house and then go through all my questions, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> Now I've got chefs all over China on WeChat. So I can literally be in the kitchen and say, by the way, you know, would you add vinegar at this stage or that stage? And then they'll say, oh, this is what you do. So, um, yeah, social media has revolutionized my recipe testing. Excellent. <laughs> we want to get onto that loop of you trying the recipes. That just watch the, the, the conversation. We probably wouldn't understand the conversations. It's all in Chinese. Yeah, it's the problem. problem. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, what about, the, you talk a bit about vegetarian cooking and stuff like that, and somehow in my head I always had this opinion that in China you would have to be a meat eater. But you talk, the, the, there is quite an aspect of vegetarian cooking here. Yeah, well, I mean, in the past, most people couldn't afford to eat much meat. And so most people had a lot of tofu and cabbage vegetables and fermented foods and rice in the South anyway. And um, so having said that, um, strict vegetarianism is rare in China. So um, you only get that really in Buddhist monasteries. So Buddhist monks in China lived in monasteries, still do, and they have a strict, practically vegan diet. Um, sometimes they're allowed egg white, um, but they vegetarian food. So you have a very strong tradition of Buddhist vegetarian cooking, which is not only completely vegetarian, but they don't use the hoodn, smelly, oniony, garlicky vegetables either. Um, so lay Buddhists who would go to a temple on holy days and things like that would tend to eat meat at home and vegetarian only on the holy days or when they went to the temple. Um, but there is this amazing tradition of people eating um, largely vegetarian food, um, often using meat and fish as a sort of seasoning. So little bits of meat, stock and lard to enrich vegetable ingredients. So this is one thing actually in the book before this, Every Grain of Rice, that I really wanted to stress about Chinese food is that at a time when people are trying, looking for ways to eat less meat for health and environmental re reasons, Chinese cuisine offers real solutions in terms of um, eating much less meat and fish, but without sacrificing any pleasure. So I think vegetarians traveling in China do sometimes have a problem because when they ask for vegetarian food, they often get food with little bits of pork in it mm -hmm. or stock. Um, so you really have to say, I'm a Buddhist, I can't have stock, lard or meat and stuff like that. Um, and only in sort of in sophisticated cities, so Shanghai, for example, there's a sort of trendy, arty, literary type of people who are becoming vegetarian for sort of compassionate reasons. But often even they will have meat if they're feeling ill, if they feel they need nourishment. So um, I, I wrote an article about vegetarianism in China a while ago, and people just drew a distinction between what they call sushi, which means vegetarian eating or vegetarian food, 
and Sushi Juni, which vegetarianism as a sort of ideology, which they saw was a Western thing. Very interesting. I'm going to open for a few questions from there before we discuss what we cook today. Anyone have any questions? I very much admire your your shark's fin book oh. <laughs> uh, and the voyage through discovering about Chinese food and then what it is and a sort of voyage of recovery to understand where you've got to. The question is, how do you deal with a deep fried rabbit? Do you crunch it open with your teeth or <laughs> suck out the brains? Or do, do they, no, no, is it they, cut in two? Yeah, they cut it in half, so it's accessible. And then you, yeah, you pull off the jaw and a very nice bit of mm. French here, and then you, um, you eat the brain, and it's all what my father would call high grapple factor. <laughs> so very fiddly, and then you yes. suck it all off. And it, it's really fun, particularly when you're drunk later in life. So I think there's an enormous amount of cultural understanding we have got to have to get to grips with some of the things that people are eating every day over there, yeah. which we don't know. Well, I think that's what I'm actually giving a talk at the China Exchange on Thursday about this, which is about um, sort of textural foods. I think actually it's about eating dark tongues and why you would eat dark tongue. But in China, um, there is this very... Um, interesting and nuanced appreciation of the texture of foods, the mouthfeel. And it's as important as flavor. It's just part of the whole experience. And Chinese people really enjoy um, texture as a thing in itself, which is why they eat things that are pointless in terms of Western gastronomy, like goose intestines or sort of cartilage, things like that. Sharks fin at the high end and bird's nest, totally tasteless. Of course, when they're served, they're in a nice sauce or whatever. But um, people like these things um, partly because of the texture and I think as an outsider if you want to really appreciate Chinese food then it's important to sort of get over that hurdle and understand and appreciate texture because of course there are plenty of things you can love and enjoy without that but there'll be a whole sort of set, whole aspect of Chinese gastronomy that you cannot appreciate from a western point of view it makes no sense Quite, uh, you do trips as well, don't you? You take people sometimes to yeah, I do eat um, around eating around China. Yeah. <laughs> I do trips with a company in Beijing called Wild China, and we do one called the Classic Tour, which is Beijing, Xi'an, um, Chengdu, Shanghai, and Hangzhou. So that's a kind of introduction to Chinese gastronomy and three of the great cuisines of China, sort of north, east, and west. And then um, we also do a Yunnan tour, so that's Yunnan in the far southwest, bordering Burma, Laos, and Vietnam. And there, the food is is one of the most biodiverse regions on earth, and they have incredible ingredients, famous for mushrooms. They also eat flowers and insects, and lots of interesting vegetables. So that's the sort of one region with a particularly interesting cuisine, and also very. Um, relatively undeveloped and unpolluted, so from a travel point of view, it's very lovely. How often do you do these? Um, twice a year. We, we need to. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to go for his fourth year, so we have to book in advance. Yes, sorry, any other questions? I've got a really practical question. Mm. Um, when I was about 20, I bought my first walk in Soho, in one of the supermarkets. And I became sort of quite interested in it. And I still have my walk, but I've always had a gas um, 
flame. flame. Yeah. And we've now moved to induction, and my block is in the attic. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there is such a difference between cooking on gas with that very thin, hot, hot thing, and a wok that you use on induction. It's sort of lost its, I've lost its love. You know what I mean? But how, but how do you adapt to more modern sort of uh, well, I mean, mechanisms in the kitchen and, and so Obviously, you need to have a flat-bottomed wok. Yes, if which you I have do, yeah. cooking. And um, and failing that, I think you need you just need something with as much base contact with your source of heat yeah. and with high sides so that you can move the food around. Yes. So you have to do that. But I mean, induction per se is fine. And I know professional Chinese chefs who are now using induction. Okay. So you can get, um, in China, you can get in, induction hobs, which have an indentation for the wok. And so the technique is slightly different because in a gas fire one, all the heat's going like that. Absolutely, yeah. And with induction, you've got rings around the outside. So there's one particular technique when you're stir-frying that sometimes you push the food up the side, let the oil pool, and something is you stir something into the Else, oil. Yeah. So you, you have to adapt slightly because the heat source is on the sides as well. Yes. But it's great, and you can get very hot very safely okay. um, on induction. So I actually had my kitchen redone a year or two ago, and I did look into induction. And um, there are one or two available here, but for example, the Miele induction mm. wok, it comes with a wok that is not the right shape for Chinese cooking. It's very low and flat mm. and heavy, non-stick surface. And so it, I just didn't feel that yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to stir exactly But if yeah. someone would start making an induction wok that would take a round-bottom, thin Chinese yes. wok, then I would jump on it, really. I, I wondered if you'd sorted it out, I was going to ask you. <laughs> oh, well, I've got gas. We, we, use, we have one of these, the cast iron woks with a flat bottom, mm. which we use for everything. I mean, we cook everything, and we like pasta and, and scrambled eggs, everything. And what normally you wouldn't have the flat bottom. Oh, You would uh, have it completely round. Yeah. These are the woks of choice. Well, that's a typical Chinese wok. Mm. Yeah. So we've been misguided all but these But we have years. electric, you wouldn't be able to use a round one. No, you have a sort of cradle and rest it in, so you've got the heat coming up around it. But then it's perfect for, mo the food is very mobile around the, the sides and the base of the wok. Okay, can I ask another one? <laughs> <laughs> which brand of soy sauce? Mm. Oh, which brand? I mean, um, well, the, the most important thing is to get one that's naturally fermented. So there is a sort of fast chemical fermentation of soy sauce, which is probably inferior. I mean, I wouldn't go for that. So um, in terms of ones that are widely available, the Pearl River Bridge, which you can mm. get, yeah. um, is good. But also, Lee Kum Ki and Pearl River Bridge now do premium soy sauce. And I think the Lee Kum Ki is called something one of them is called, I think the Lee Company is called Premium Deluxe, and um, the other Pearl River Bridge is called something like Extra Virgin or something like that. But they've started doing premium soy sauces, and it's really worth getting them. They're really delicious, and particularly when you're using them in sauces for cold dishes or dips, where the soy sauce is, you know, when you, you actually particularly notice the soy sauce, it's not just in a composite dish. It's really worth getting them. Um, so those are very good. And there's another um, Taiwanese brand, I can't remember the name, which I get with the yellow label. The, That's not very helpful. Okay, I can just think of the labels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, you're saying I'm just thinking of labels. I get the yellow label and I get it in, in Siwu, in 
Lyle Street. But um, yeah, I think it, I would recommend using, I mean, the Pearl River Bridge are perfectly fine for you know using a little bit in a dish, but I would get one of these luxury ones for where the, you're sort of really noticing the soy sauce. Give us more things that you would get specifically. This is very interesting to us. Okay. Like specific brands that are... Okay, so Sichuan chili bean paste, pixian douban, which is very unusual in China because it's made with a particular kind of chili and broad beans, fermented broad beans rather than soybeans. Um, so that's one of the key ingredients in twice-cooked pork, mapo dofu, and all these dishes. Um, when I wrote my first book, the only version of that you could get was li kam ki. Now you can get the chili bean paste from Pixian, this county just outside Chengdu. And um, in sort of sometimes in a basket with sachets inside, um, so it's worth getting chili bean paste. That is um, the ingredients should just be chilies, broad beans or fava beans, wheat flour and salt. Um, the Li Kam Ki one also has um, um, soybeans in it and it has a lot of garlic, so the first smell is garlic. But having said that, I think you get really, I mean, it makes really delicious food. It's not as authentic as the PCM Nobel, but, you know, it's great that that's more widely available in supermarkets. And when I first came up from Sichuan, that was the only thing. But if you want to make, like, the best mapo dofu, then try and get a real earthy-coloured PCM. But for us going into these, like, Chinese stores, we're... Nobody really wants to talk to us. Because <laughs> they don't, because I've tried several times. Like, how do we, oh, well, <laughs> do we find what we're looking for? You have to get my last book, Every Grain of Rice, when there are pictures of things. And a lot of people will take that book into the supermarket. And then, oh, yeah, we've got that. So you can actually, obviously, with your phone, take a picture of what you want. Because um, it helps having the Chinese characters. Like a little shopping basket on our phone. <laughs> yeah, like a friend of mine who lives in Washington, one of my old college friends, she once um, sent me an email um, and she said that she and her husband were in this Chinese supermarket somewhere in America and they wanted to get things for cooking from my book, What the Short Shilling Gets. <laughs> so I just went to every great arise and I sort of sent them the list. And then about half an hour later, they sent a photograph of a shopping trolley. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. There's also a really good uh, glossary of, of ingredients in this book that kind of explains and everything. But and actually, there's a website called souschef.co.uk, and they do a, a, I can't remember whether you call it a bundle or kit for this book. So with the book and the key ingredients. Mm. And they, they take great care to try and source... Um, the appropriate ingredients. They've got good stuff. Oh, and what oil would you use for most of the frying? Because it's quite high. Yeah, something with, with a high smoke point. So um, in Sichuan, the traditional oil is rapeseed oil, but it's a kind of toasty rapeseed oil, which you can't get here. Yeah. Um, but now most chefs in the cities would use a refined, if you a refined um, groundnut or peanut oil, or sunflower oil, or um, or a refined rapeseed oil, and those ones are quite stable at high temperatures and very neutral, so they're good for stir-fry. So you, you don't want to use olive oil or something. Yeah, but yeah and sesame oil is never used as a cooking oil. It's a flavouring that sort of tastes of sesame oil. 
And also the other great cooking oil in China is lard, actually. And um, you know, it gives a beautiful lusciousness to vegetables. So in the countryside, people make their own lard, traditionally. You know, they rear a pig and they have it for the new year and they keep the lard. And so, so, and then a lot of chefs will use a mixture of lard and rapeseed oil. Because um, it could go quite high in temperature, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you get the flavor. Yeah. What did we cook? Itama, what did you cook? I don't cook anything. What did I cook? I cooked, I, I have to say, everything is really so delicate and spectacular. And this is audiobook, really, but this one has just ruined eating Chinese food out for me. Because <laughs> I know that the best Chinese food I'm going to eat is, is in my home. There's the chicken. Everything here is from the appetizer chapter, which I can happily live on all my life. There's the chicken and spring onion sauce. Yeah, so there's um, spring onion and all chicken, so that's a very classic Shanghainese dish. So it's poached chicken. So you poach it in sort of low temperature, um, or you don't boil it vigorously. So the, the chicken should be very succulent and very tender. And, um, and then the sauce is made by sizzling hot oil onto spring onion greens and um, then adding chicken stock and a bit of salt. So it's very simple, but it's designed, as a lot of the cooking of this region is, to showcase the bun way, the root or essential flavour of your ingredients. Um, so that's the point of cooking that dish. And then there's um, a lovely Shanghainese aubergine dish. So the aubergines are actually steamed here, and then you finish them off with garlic and sizzling hot oil and spring onion and soy sauce. And this is actually a cooking method that you get a lot in um, Cantonese cooking as well as Shanghainese. And again, that's a different side to the aubergine from the fried kind. And then um, that's a smacked cucumber, right, with garlic and vinegar. Very simple, refreshing. Beautiful. Yeah. And then that's a radish salad. with That's a sweet and sour, that yeah. one, isn't yeah. it, in that book? Yeah. So um, again, and that's just sort of, is worth pointing out that um, it's just a completely different side of Chinese food. This region, there's an emphasis on qingdan, delicate, light flavors about ingredients. And um, this word qingdan, which is a very lovely word in Chinese, and it's often translated tragically as bland or insipid. You know, this is, a, this is food that's about comfort and harmony and appreciating ingredients. So it's very much attuned to sort of a lot of modern values and ideas about food, but it's it's not what you think of when you think of Chinese restaurant food in this country. Yeah. I just wonder what people tend to, to, to drink normally with a Chinese meal, you know, wine, beer, mostly tea, I suppose. Oh, well, um, you drink tea with certain kinds of Chinese meal, mm. like Cantonese dim sum. But in other parts of China, you tend to drink tea before and after the meal. Mm -hmm. So with a meal, um, as I said, you always have soup. So the soup is the kind of refreshment. So often you don't really need to have a liquid. Um, but people casually now, will, you know, beer is very popular with young people especially. And there's also all these um, very sharp vodka-like spirits, white liquor, which is drunk at sort of ritualistic way at formal occasions. So um, some, you, you have these tiny little glasses filled and you don't drink as you please. You have to always drink in toast with one or more people at the table. Mm -hmm. And um, you tend to start toasting and you never really mix alcohol with rice. So in China, people eat the dishes first and then they fill up on rice at the end. So if you're drinking rounds of toasts, once you accept a bowl of rice, that's 
usually a sort of a sign that you're not drinking anymore. Um, yeah. So that's really interesting. So you don't serve the rice with the dishes. You actually have yeah, it just normally towards eating. the end. Yeah. Okay. And so you fill up, and then you sometimes have a xiaofan tai, a dish to send the rice down, which mm-hmm. might be something strong like pickles or um, some very salty dish to just as a relish with your rice. But um, yeah, and so some people now some drink wine. So um, red wine is very fashionable in China. It's very sophisticated, and even though it doesn't go best really with this kind of delicate cooking. Um, and also in this region, you also have Shaoxing wine, which we know here as a cooking wine mainly. And it's quite, you know, low quality cooking wine that, that it's not really for drinking, but Shaoxing, this city near Shanghai, has a wonderful winemaking tradition. There's lovely stuff made from glutinous rice, amber coloured, which is, um, is a bit sort of the strength of sake or sherry. And um, they do drink that with meals in that region, uh, particularly things like hairy crabs, famous mm-hmm. autumn delicacy. And that's also medicinal reasons, because hairy crabs in Chinese medicinal terms are very cold. So you have to have them with wine and ginger and vinegar to balance it out. The whole world. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Honey and Cocoa. We hope you enjoyed it, even if you didn't get to try the food. I promise everything was absolutely delicious. There are some wonderful guests coming up in the next few weeks and will be available to download. So make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a review if you can. That'll be really, really great for us. This show is expertly produced by Hester Kant, music by the great Ellis Russell. If you want to come along to one of our talks, you can join our mailing list on our website, honeyandco.co.uk, or follow us on our social media at honeyandco. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.